This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including Kevin Dutton's The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies, and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Steve Mursky here. Welcome back for part two of the conversation between psychologist and author Kevin Dutton and actor Michael C. Hall, TV's blood spatter expert and suppressor, Dexter, recorded at the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City. You'll also hear Tim McHenry, the Rubin's Director of Public Programs and Performance. Again, the Rubin specializes in the art and culture of Himalayan Asia, which is why Buddhist issues come up in the context of the conversation. Uh, a lot of people say to me, well, what's it like being around a psychopath? Now, you've, 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 been around, you've done your research and you've been around these guys. I've, I've uh, like I said, I've watched some documentaries, read some books, uh, transcripts of interviews, but I didn't uh, seek out any actual psychopaths okay. because I thought it might throw me off my yeah, game. It okay, might sure. freak yeah, me out. Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, when, when you're around these guys, there, there, you, there is a really palpable vibe. They do have an aura. And um, it's, it's the same aura. I've also done quite a lot of work with, uh, with special forces, soldiers, um, uh, many of whom are actually along the psychopathic spectrum, quite far along the psychopathic spectrum. They are ruthless, they are fearless, they are very focused and mentally tough, and for obvious reasons. Um, but the, the vibe that you get when you're around psychopaths is this very similar to the vibe you get around special forces, soldiers. And that is that there is... Don't get me wrong here. There's a, there's a real sense of of positivity, of anything's possible. Mm. These are guys with no moral brakes. Okay, it's like driving a car with no brakes. You know, if you've got if you've got a really fast road, it's fantastically thrilling. But the problem is that these guys, and one of these guys actually said this to me when I interviewed him. He said, you know, actually, are what you saying? What you're saying is that the car's too good for the road. And, and it's very true. Psychopaths, in a sense, have got all these positive qualities, but they've got too much of a good thing. They've got all of these qualities turned up to max. And so when you meet these guys, there, there is a sense of anything's possible. You know, if you say, well, you know, we all come up with reasons not to do things. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you're around these guys, it's like, well, you know, why not? You know, that's the kind of default setting. Yeah. Why not? And that's actually really refreshing. Because they're not, they're not infused with or, or inv- invested in negative possibilities That's exactly or potentialities. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah, it doesn't and, matter. And we can all, in, in everyday life, we can, all, we can all do that. I mean, in simple situations like, you know, if you're at work and you want to put in for a raise, you know, most of us think, uh, oh, well, I, you know, I don't really want to do that because what if I don't get it? Mm-hmm. What, if I, what, what will the boss think of me if I don't get it? What will, what will my fellow employees think of me if I don't get it? Well, you know, folks, psychopath up. You know, just go, just go, focus on the benefits of getting that, right, yeah. you know, and actually just go for it and don't think, of, and of course what you get then is you get that confidence, Michael, you get that kind of confidence and the more confident you are, the more chances, ironically, that you actually have of getting it. You know? Yeah, is it, in confidence is in, in, in that sense isn't necessarily about 
believing that the outcome will be positive, it's not caring if it's negative. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's not right. being invested in that. Absolutely right. Just don't focus on the negative, on the negative side effects. And that's what psychopaths are very good at. Sometimes they, they don't focus on the negatives and they, and they get things completely wrong. Mm. So, you know, that's why psychopaths are extremely cool under pressure when the rest of us might be, might be terrified because actually they're just focused on the reward that they're getting. That's why in, in the Second World War, um, a colleague of mine has a theory that a lot of great fighter pilots actually um, were, were, had, were very high along the psychopathic spectrum. These were guys that you know, c- flew very dangerous missions um, despite the fact that you know, actually they could be killed and these guys had great kill ratios. So, you know, the, the, this, this kind of focus on the, on, the, on the reward does really work in, in certain professions. The other thing is, you know, next time that you're faced with a, a difficult situation, uh, you know, just think to yourself, well, what would I do if it didn't really matter that much to me, okay? So, you know, this is something that Dexter could tell you. I mean, you know, just, just kind of, you know, what, if I wasn't frightened, if I wasn't so damn frightened, what would I do? And then when you've just taken a step back and thought about that, well, just do it, you know? Just the Nike slogan, just do it, you know? Um, So that's that's another way that, you know, people can kind of use the the Dexter mindset, I think, in in, in everyday life. Make it work for you. Yeah. The the Dexter manifesto, I think. I I think that's... uh, I've been wondering what I'm going to do when Dexter's over, and I think maybe a... Yeah. Be like a self-help. I think you should... I think... I think... I think... I, be, I beat you to it there. Okay. I, think you should, I, think right. you should, yeah. I think you should come to Oxford and be a psychologist. Yeah. I think you want to do it together? 50, yeah, 50? we can do 70, that. 70, 30. 70, 30, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, Michael could become a Buddhist monk. That, that seems like a possibility. Um, so now is the real test of who the psychopaths in the room are. And uh, you shouldn't fear rejection of your question. Be totally confident and focused. We've got uh, microphones on either side of the house, so um, raise your hand if you want to ask a question, and we'll try and get to as many as possible. Yes, yes. Hi. I want to talk about something that you have not t- spoken about at all, and the fact that Dexter has a son, yes. which drives me crazy as a mother. See, psychopath number one. She's already crazy. How is it possible that he has the son, although he's always shipped off to Orlando, Right. Which also drives me crazy. Yeah. It's like, you know, does he really have the capacity to love this kid? And plus, when he was, you know, loving Rita, did he really, you know, what? Did he really? How compartmentalized is that? I think, you know, the fact that 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 he was married, and the the fact that those kind of those kinds of questions make you crazy is a part of what I like about the show. That no, that that that. And that intrigues me about the character. Um, and maybe, maybe you could speak about this, but it, the, I think he is interested in understanding what human emotion is and what genuine connection is. I don't know that he quite feels it. Um, but I think it's a fundamental part of what... Uh, or it's the fundamental part of what doesn't allow him to continue to tell himself or anyone else that he's not real. I mean, he's not made of circuits and wires. He's a flesh and blood person, and there's this evidence of that. It's also uh, something he 
that really does a number on his desire to control uh, his environment or his world or his person because uh, he can control himself and what's inside. But now that there's, and I, and I mean, I, I think as a parent, maybe uh, you could relate to that sense that all of a sudden there's this person for whom you're responsible and you can't control them in the same way that you control yourself. But yeah, as far as the fact that he's conveniently um, um, absent from the scene for weeks on end, that's really a question for the writers. <laughs> Um, uh, let's take somebody on the uh, other side of the house. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Um, so I have a question about nature versus nurture. I, I think it's really interesting that in Dexter, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's turned into a psychopath by seeing his mom chopped up in front of him, and so is his brother. And uh, so um, I wonder if that's sort of deliberate on the part of the show. And Kevin, I guess the question for you is, What's the evidence that psychopaths are born versus made? Okay, shall I take that one? Yes, first? please. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, there's evidence to suggest that there, there is a, a, a genetic component uh, to psychopathy. Um, ev- the evidence hovers around about a 50% genetic component uh, and a 50% environmental component. But when we talk about uh, whether it's nature or nurture... Uh, there's a, the argument has kind of moved on a little bit from that. It's a little bit more complex. There's now um, a, a sub-discipline uh, of genetics called epigenetics. Um, and this is another way in which the, the Dexter show is, is ultra-real. It's, 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 very, it's, it's really founded in scientific fact. And that is that... Um, imagine that... Uh, well, if you, could, you could have a psychopathic gene. Let's just simplify it and say it's one gene. It's not. It's, it's a whole conglomeration of genes. Uh, let's say you've got a psychopathic gene. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a psychopath. Uh, what that means is you have the propensity to be a psychopath, but you need environmental triggers to maybe set that gene off. Now, those environmental triggers are almost invariably traumatic childhoods. Okay, So we've, we've got the Dexter scenario right there. So either abuse or a traumatic scene or violence or something like a traumatic experience in childhood. Now... This always gets a bit complicated, but I have an analogy to, to, to use to explain this. Imagine that our genes are like the text in a book, okay? And that book is lying closed on a library shelf, okay? Now, that information, that text, is not going to come alive. It's not going to have any impact if that book remains closed. It's only going to work if someone comes and opens that book and reads it. So for the person opening the book and read it, that's the environmental trigger, Okay, so that's what makes the information come live. Got another question here? Yes. Hi, my question is about. Uh, first of all, I, I think you're phenomenal. But my question is about uh, Dexter's relationship with his father. Yes. And what is it in him, given who he is, that he wants to, even after his father's gone, seek his father's approval? And along the same lines, if that's the case. What allowed him to throw out the code and the, you know, the blood, the blood slides this last episode? Um, well, I think what allowed him to do that was, you know, there are a lot of things alive in him, but if anything trumps anything else, it might be a self-preservation. And uh, I think he recognized that if, if he continued to collect those trophies, uh, that, that it would... Um, make him that much more vulnerable. And I think that 
getting rid of them also coincides with with the desire to be a grown up and to relinquish childish things and uh, as far as far as Dexter's father goes, I mean that's he has this internalized relationship with his father that that I guess um, I can relate to. My father passed away when I was young, um, and it's really not his father anymore. It's him. It's 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 a conversation he's having with himself. You know, we tell ourselves stories about who we're talking to, but it's really just us. And um, I think he seems to thrive on some sort of internal conflict. He has a desire to lean against something, and um, he perhaps resents that the thing that's kept him safe is something that was given him. You know, he wants to. Uh, own himself in a way that he can't quite do because his father gave him this code. So he he has uh, many many times over learned the lesson that adhering to it is the right thing to do. But there's this simultaneous desire to rebel against it and lean against it, and um, the relationship, the internal relationship he has with with his father never really lands. It's always um, swinging. Uh, back and forth. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but um, it, as far as the the nurture side of things for Dexter, you could argue that that without Harry, Dexter would have become like his brother, and would have killed indiscriminately. Um, mm-hmm. Or you could a- argue that while he experienced a, a real trauma with his mother's murder, that the real abuse uh, was done by his father. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like the world of the show in, in as much as there are all these um, uh, coins with with flip sides and both are arguably true at any given time and sometimes simultaneously. We've got a question right over there. Um, thank you. I love your show and I watch it religiously. Um, I I find it interesting the correlation between addiction, uh, which we haven't really discussed too much, mm-hmm. and Dexter's character, and also. I guess it's a two-parter for you both. How much does Dexter rely and on the addiction side of what he does in and out, and is that breakable and outside of the realm of psychopathic tendencies? And have you ever really studied the psychopath's brain versus the addict's brain, and do they correlate so that and if an addiction is broken, can you unwind that behavior? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there, there has been work done uh, looking at uh, psychopathy and addiction. Uh, you, addiction, uh, psychopaths do get very addicted to, to, uh, to substances. Uh, and that actually comes right back to something that I touched upon uh, earlier. It comes back to the fact that psychopaths are extremely reward-driven, okay? Uh, they are extremely focused on the positives and getting rewards. So on the basis of that, it wouldn't be too difficult to predict that actually psychopaths um, would possess more of an addictive personality than others. And when we look at psychopaths, um, especially the, the kind of the, the less intelligent psychopaths, uh, the ones with a lower IQ, become more addicted. Uh, there, there is a real prevalence of addiction uh, and substance abuse with it, especially alcoholism and drug abuse within psychopaths. Now, there was a wonderful study done not so long ago, a couple of years ago, uh, which looked at what happens in the brains of psychopaths compared to the brains of normal people uh, when they are given positive stimuli. So uh, the, the researchers put psychopaths in a brain scanner and they put a load of bunch of normal people in a brain scanner. 
and they gave them uh, a shot of speed, uh, amphetamine, okay? And they wondered, they, they looked at what happened. Now, um, we know that the reward circuits in the brain, again, not to get too technical with you, but the circuits that drive pleasure and reward in our brain are run by a neurochemical, a neurotransmitter called dopamine. It's the dopamine circuit. Uh, and so what you would predict, if psychopaths really were more reward-driven, when they get a shot of the, of, the dopa, of, the, uh, of the amphetamine, of the speed, there should be more activity in that dopamine-run brain circuit compared to normal people. And that is exactly what the research has found. In fact, the, the activity in the psychopath's dopamine reward circuit was four times greater than it was in the circuits of the normal people who were given a shot of amphetamine. Uh, I wanted to sign up for that study, funny enough, but, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm not sure which camp I would fall in. But, um, but actually, yeah, there is a, the, the, the very fact that psychopaths are reward-driven makes them far more prone to addictive kinds of behaviours. Uh, than, um, than, um, than non-psychopaths. And of course, that also gives them their focus that, that we were talking about earlier, Michael. You know, Dexter's kind of drivenness. Mm -hmm. You know, that itself is an addiction, you know. Yeah, and I, th I think Dexter is, is definitely on an addictive cycle with, with his particular indulgence. And um, his, his certainly... Um, uh, <coughs> given over to the first step and he's, he, he definitely uh, recognizes his powerlessness. Uh, and um, and, and there, there seems to be no hope that, that he's um, going to be rehabilitated. I think we should return to the Bering Strait analogy and make a, a very clear distinction, I think, between psychopaths and Buddhist monks. Because a Buddhist monk, for example... Um, would regard any sort of addiction as an attachment. And, of course, yeah. their, their role is to abjure attachment sure. uh, in yeah. any shape or form. Uh, but what they do share is, um, it seems, and this word has come up a lot, even in the questions, is focus. And mm. focus seems, as the result of the, at least three of the sessions that we've had so far in this series, focus delivers a form of contentment and happiness. Can you speak to that? I, I think that's absolutely right, yeah. I think that what, one of the things that Buddhists and psychopaths both, ha both have is that focus. Um, now, I've just actually come back, as I was saying to you, I've just come back from a trip to uh, Dharamsala, which is uh, in northern India, uh, where you have... It's the seat of the Dalai Lama. Uh, and it's basically... There's a, there's a very large Tibetan community there. Um, and it's, it's very strange, actually, because I, I went up and tested these expert Buddhist meditator monks high, high in the mountains. And one of the things that, uh, that, that I asked them was, you know, if, if, I, if I want to be happier in my life, uh, what should I do? Uh, and uh, almost to a man, they, they all said that actually focusing on the impermanence of life, focusing on the fact that we could be, you know, gone tomorrow... Um, is, a, is a great kind of concentrator of the mind on, you know, getting rid of, like, material possessions, getting rid of attachments. Now, I think the difference between psychopaths and Buddhist monks, um, that's not to say that there aren't some psychopathic Buddhist monks. No, they're, they're not that I came across them, but, um, but I didn't test for that. But, um, <laughs> but one of the things that, um, that, that, that one of the things we find is that Actually, um, focusing, uh, psychopaths tend to 
be very mindful. That's another thing they have in common with Buddhist monks because they, the, the impermanence of existence is something that psychopaths also feel. You know, psychopaths have a devil-may-care attitude to life, here today, gone tomorrow. So they're not that different in that respect to, to Buddhist monks. Uh, but the difference between psychopaths and Buddhist monks is that Buddhist monks live in the moment and they savour that moment. Psychopaths live in the moment and they seize it. They seize it for what all it's worth. They seize it for their own personal gratification. They squeeze every last drop of gratification out of every second. Whereas a Buddhist monk uh, lives in the live, uh, an expert Buddhist monk meditator lives in the moment, but doesn't squeeze it out. It's they, they savor it. So they they that bearing straight analogy I think works. Again, they're very close, but they they both live in the moment. Uh, they both don't have many attachments, but they completely different kind of takes on it. Time for maybe three questions. Oh, goodness. Um, all right. Kind of a follow-up to the sort of Bering Strait and the Buddhist monks. Um, one of the things you mentioned back to, like, the lizard brain idea is that psychopaths don't have insight into, like, their ability to, like, detect weakness or to detect the handkerchief or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about the monks and the micro-expressions and the lie detection, do they have insight into that? Can they unpack for you what they're doing when they're breaking or slowing time down or how they perceive it? They don't know. They, they, they don't have any insight into, like, the slowing time down. What, they, what we did discover was the, the Buddhist monks would say something like, and quite a few of them said this, they would say something like, um, I can tell that this person has a deep inner pain. And therefore, I believe that they're telling the truth. Um, as opposed to maybe the people who were faking it. And they would say, no, there doesn't seem to be a real pain there. But precisely what they were looking at in terms of decoding that pain is different. I guess my question is, um, what do you think Dexter's definition of happiness is, and and is he happy? I think Dexter has moments of happiness, um, or moments of contentment, at least, um, probably immediately following killing someone. Uh, but they don't last very long. I think Dexter, has, just as he's surrendered to his uh, powerlessness um, regarding his compulsion to kill, I think he's also relinquished any any hope for happiness. Um, I think his idea of content or happiness rather would be one in which he wasn't driven by his compulsion. Um, and uh, that's a part of what makes him kind of a tragic character. I've met a few psychopaths in my time, one or two of them, and it's very rare. I've, it's rare that I've met a psychopath that uh, that would actually, you know, actually says I don't really want to be a psychopath. Actually, they're actually quite happy. A lot of psychopaths uh, because they they just don't see a problem with it. They're very they're very mentally tough. They're very non anxious. Um, and actually, if you think about that, you know, you, you know, we don't have any anxieties. I don't give a damn what people think of me. Uh, you know, actually, that's that's not a bad kind of gig to get, really, is it? I mean, <laughs> even if even when when you actually deal with a moral fallback, I mean, we've all seen psychopaths in court, um, you know, sentenced to life imprisonment or even death, and they just smile nonchalantly. You know, that's the worst possible outcome we could all imagine. You know, we'd all go to pieces. But, you know, you get psychopaths sticking the finger up to the judge and going off laughing, you know. So they are actually very mentally robust. Nothing gets them down. I think, I think the, sh- the story of the show is, is, is someone who's 
unraveling in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, the Dexter who we meet at the very beginning of this series is happy. Mm. Um, and only when his appetite for something he never thought or imagined possible, his own um, humanity uh, is, is wedded by this emergence of, his, of a character who turns out to be his brother does his whole construct start to unravel. And um, yeah, he's happy for a second there. Hmm. Um, gentlemen, I want to return to this uh, decisive nature of, of the psychopath and, and make yet another correlation between those and, uh, and Buddhist monks. Because I'm actually, the number of monks that I've met uh, here at the museum and elsewhere in the Himalayas uh, also show very little dithering tendencies. Mm. I mean, they, they go straight for what they want. And I remember we, we brought 30 monks over from the kingdom of Bhutan uh, mm. a few years ago for this Bhutan exhibition, and they did demon subjugation dances all around the city. These gentlemen had never been on a plane, never been on an elevator, um, never been on an escalator. Uh, you know, they had never been outside their monastery or indeed their country uh, where those things largely don't exist. And I, I remember meeting them at the, the Y where they were staying, right? Very, very frugal bedding situation. Um, but, and I got in the elevator with them and I knew what floor they were supposed to go to, but I was there trying to work out which one was 21. They were already there. You know, I mean, they had absolute focus and mm. just precision of, of action, mm. which was mm. amazing to me, even in that small instance. I'll give you another brain study, Tim, on that, which, which, which basically backs up that point. There was a study which, is, which has been done looking... Well, but actually a number of studies. It wasn't the same study. And the same pattern of brain activation uh, has been found in uh, Buddhist monks when they're making decisions... Uh, psychopaths, when they're making decisions under pressure, life and death situations like the train, like the trolley problem we were talking about earlier, and also, and this is the key, the same brain uh, areas are, uh, are active when uh, you look at experts who are either, either uh, video game player experts or sports people who are in a state of what's called flow. When they're in, you might have heard this term in the media, when they're in the zone, when they're just performing optimally. The same areas, the same pattern of brain activation are found in those three kinds of people. Sports people when they're in the zone. Uh, psychopaths when they're making decisions under extreme pressure. And Buddhist monks when they're in a state of compassionate meditation. Same brain state links all three. Very intriguing. Kevin Dutton's book is The Wisdom of Psychopaths, What Saints, Spies and Serial Killers Can Teach Us About Success. You can get it as your free audiobook by taking advantage of the offer at www.audible.com slash Siam. Thanks for listening to this psychopath extravaganza. For all your science news, go to our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can find Citizen Science, which describes big research efforts that need the eyes, ears, and computers of interested people like you. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I am Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.